Luke chapter 14 will be concluding this morning the series of messages that we brought from Mark chapter number 8 on the subject of when Jesus said, for my sake and the gospels. Mark chapter 8 and verse number 34, Jesus said to his disciples, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Those were the text verses that we were attempting to get to, and we took two weeks of introduction to go through Mark chapter 8. So I'll recap shortly, and I have you there in Luke 14, because that's the first main text that we'll look at this morning. Then we'll go back to Mark 8, where we just read. I thought about changing my message this week. I prayed about it, uh, wondered if I should deviate to a different topic with what is happened and going on this week, and I just felt that there wasn't another message coming, and the Lord said, go on ahead and finish. Uh, Brother Jason got to speak on the subject of comfort ye my people this morning, so that was wonderful. Thank you, Jason, so much for that. Mark chapter 8 had been a time of great blessing. We've covered the last two weeks, and Jesus was trying to let his disciples know that it would not always be that way for them to follow him, for them to be his disciples. He had fed thousands of people. He healed a blind man. It was popular. It was great to follow Jesus, but he was trying to let them know that there would come a day when it would not always be popular or fun, or there would not be a lack of persecution to follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray one more time for the message. I surely feel I need it this morning. Heavenly Father, please be with me now. I pray that you would be with my mind that you would help me to say the words that you would want me to say this morning, that the word of God would be clear, that it would be powerful, that it would not be my ideas, but rather it would be your word clearly explained and that we could take it and apply it to our lives this morning. The thought of when Jesus said he cannot be my disciple, help us, Lord, be willing this morning to purpose in our heart that we want to be your disciple, no matter the cost, no matter what that means. Fill me with the Holy Spirit and help me as I speak this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So it had been a a good time to follow Jesus in Mark chapter number 8. And he said to them, who do men say that I am? And some people were saying that he was Elijah come back from the dead or that he was John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And then Christ said, but whom say ye that I am? And we talked about the first week in this three-part series. Now, how Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon, For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. He commended Peter. It was wonderful that Peter recognized that Jesus was the Christ. Then we got to last week, how when Jesus had to turn to Peter shortly after that and say, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. He had to give Peter that correction because when Jesus began to tell what was going to happen to him, he said that he was going to be crucified and that he would be put to death. But after three days, he would rise again. And Christ was trying to transition in the conversation to tell them that's what was going to happen to him. And also that as his disciples, they needed to be prepared that suffering would sometimes accompany following Jesus Christ. For if he was going to be persecuted and he was going to be crucified and he was going to be rejected by the world, then surely his disciples would have to face some of that also. And the text says, Peter rebuked him. 
he censured him. He admonished him. He corrected him. He said, no, Lord, don't talk about how they're going to defeat you. We'll make sure they don't. I'll save you. And then Jesus had to turn to him and rebuke him. The same word. He rebuked Peter. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. He was trying to tell Peter, no, it does not fall in line with what you want, with what you're seeking. But this is the will of God that I will die for sins and that you will go be my servants and spread the gospel and that sometimes you will have to suffer for doing that as well. Luke chapter number 14, there's a passage here that goes along with the thought that we just read in Mark 8, which is the main text verse. When Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples, there's some things you have to do. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me or else you cannot be my disciple. This was a message that Jesus was consistent in trying to tell his followers. Those who would preach what we call the prosperity gospel are not in line with the teaching of Christ. We don't tell people, well, just follow what the Bible says and God wants to make you rich and make you wealthy and everything's going to go well. Jesus never claimed that. He said, you're going to have to be willing to endure hardness as Paul said to Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter number 14, let's get going. We're going to conclude the series this morning. Luke chapter 14 and verse number 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. Now let's just stop out one more time and point out there were great multitudes following him. He was doing the miracles. His fame was spreading, and a lot of people were following him. But yet there would come a time soon where at different points in the Gospels it uses the phrase, from that point forth, many went back and followed him no more. Yeah. There were some then who there are today. They begin to follow Jesus Christ, but they do not follow through, either because they were curious but not truly saved, or else some who are saved but do not follow through on serving Christ and following him to the extent that he desires that we do. Verse 26 of Luke 14. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, the phrase follows, he cannot be my disciple. How can this be? What is Jesus saying? I think we know enough from the Bible to know that we're supposed to love everyone, even our enemies, and pray for those who are against us. The word hate that is used here has, when you look at the definition, it means hatred. It means to detest. But then one of the usages says, when you look at the definition, to love less. Jesus is very clearly laying it out here. And he's saying, if you want to be my disciple, you have to love me first. And you have to love me most more than anything or anyone. Even if it is your parent. Even if it is your child, your brother, or your sisters, you have to love me more than you love them. At one point, Jesus said, I am not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Because Jesus Christ, the message to the world, it's a divisive message. It's a stumbling block, a rock of offense. The message that Jesus Christ is God alone, and he is the only way to come to the Father and Christ said that part of the fallout that would happen after he left and Christianity would begin to spread is that mother and daughter would be divided and father-in-law and son-in-law and even family members because we want to please people, most of us by nature. We want to get along. But if there were to come a part where a family member was to say, you can't do that and me still accept you, 
And if it was the will of God for us to do what they were forbidding, we would have to make the choice to obey God, not to obey men, even if they're people we love and we care about. So obviously, we are not supposed to hate people, but our love for Christ should make our love for anyone else look like hatred in comparison because we have chosen to put Him first. Verse 27, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Mimicking what was said in Mark 8, 35. Verse 28, he continues, But which of you intending to build the tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. He said, if you're wanting to build something, you're wanting to build a house, you're going to figure how much it costs before you get started and make sure you have the funds available. Some people have actually done. I remember what this verse is talking about. When I was younger, it was a football player who had just got drafted in the NFL, and he thought, well, now I'm rich, and I'm going to build this house for my, for my mom because she sacrificed and raised for me. And she start, they started construction, and something happened that he had done legally or whatever it was, injury-wise. He was no longer in the league anymore before construction was finished, and he had to stop because he didn't have the money to actually build it. So a house that was halfway built sat there as a testament that he did not count the cost before he began the project. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to be my disciple, don't you won't be able to say that I lied to you and withheld from you information about it. He said, no, you first have to know what it's going to cost and figure and know the cost of the endeavor. And I am telling you that if you want to be my disciple, you have to bear your cross. You have to come after me. You have to love me more than you even love your own family. And if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. Verse 31, Or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? My army has 10,000, his has 20,000. So before I launch into warfare, I need to stop and figure out what it's going to cost me to do that. Verse 32, Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. If he's wise, he'll figure that he's not able to win, so he'll try to make peace rather than just launching into war without stopping first to figure what it's going to cost him to do so. Then Jesus says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. He didn't leave much ambiguity there. He didn't leave much room for interpretation. He said, I'm going to tell you right up front, if you want to be my disciple, you can't say, well, I'll give this to Jesus Christ and I'll follow him here, but I have to hold on to my possessions. I have to hold on to my pleasure. I have to hold on to my dreams. This part is mine. The rest I can give to God. He said, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Those are serious, sobering words. And it doesn't mean that we have to go out tomorrow and sell all of our possessions and be a monk in a monastery and not own anything. But what it does mean is that we have to realize we don't really own it. It all belongs to God. Amen. We say it's, it's my house, it's my car, and it's okay. We, we're not trying to claim ownership over God when we say that, but in our heart and sometimes within our words, we need to stop and remember it's not really my house. 
it's not really my car. It's not really my money. They're not even really my children. First and foremost, they belong to God. They belong to Jesus Christ. And we have to tell them, Lord, whatever it is of mine that you want me to sacrifice, that you want me to forsake, that you want me to give up and give back to you, I will gladly give it to you. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's turn back to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. And now we'll get to that to our outline here. We will consider number 1 what we are to do. What we are to do. What did Jesus tell us we're supposed to do if we want to be his disciple? Verse 34 of Mark 8. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me. Three things that if you want to come after Jesus, you have to do. Number one, let him deny himself. Jesus said, number one, deny yourself. So to truly be a follower of Jesus Christ, I have to deny myself. Our dreams, we have to lay them down and say, God, I want my dream to be what your will is for my life. My confidence in my flesh and my ability to do good works and to come to God. I have to deny myself and say, I know and I admit and I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and that I would never make it to you on my own. And when we do that, we deny ourselves. We have to admit that we have a sin nature, that we cannot trust ourselves, and that we need the righteousness of God to save us. What is your identity this morning? A lot of people in the world are seeking and searching for an identity, either for in a group, for a group to accept them, to give them approval because they did not get that from their parents or d- d- just a way to express themselves and to say who they are and to have something to belong to. But as Christians, our identity is not to be within ourself, but our identity is to be we are followers of Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, what? Know ye not that ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. When he wrote that, he was talking about our body and how we can choose to do things with our body that are sinful. And then he said, remember, you're bought with a price. You're not your own. It's not your body. It belongs to God. And some people say, well, it's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. But as Christians, we know that's not true. We know it belongs to God. It's not my hands. They belong to God. It's not my right to choose what I will do. I've been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I am to surrender to his will. And say, Lord, I will do with my body what your word says to do and not do with it what your word says not to do. I surrender to you. Deny yourself. That's not very American. That's not very modern. It's not the message that you'll find in the Disney movies. Even to children, what do they say? Follow your heart. Believe in yourself. Follow your dreams. And if there's something you want to do that other people are telling you isn't right, let it go, let it go, and do whatever you want. But the Word of God says in the book of Jeremiah that our heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And above all things, it is deceitful. He does not say follow your heart. He says deny the sin that's in your heart and follow God. He doesn't say follow your dreams. He says deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. 
There was a missionary who came to our church years and years ago and he told a story. He said when he grew up, he was trying to figure out what it was that he wanted to do. And then he came to the conclusion after looking at a whole bunch of things, he wanted to be a pilot like Melissa's brother is training to be. And he said, that was all I could think about. And I loved it. And I started taking lessons and I was good at it. And I knew I could make so much money. And one day God began to convict my heart. I had already made it all the way to be a pilot. And God was telling me, what if this isn't what my will is? for your life. Would you be willing to give it up? He said, Lord, that doesn't make any sense. Why would I give it up? There's nothing wrong with being a pilot. And God kept convicting his heart and convicting his heart so much that one day at church, he came all the way down to the altar and he took his pilot license in his hand and laid it on the altar and said, God, if you want me to give this up and have nothing to do with flying a plane anymore, then I give that to you. That's what it means to deny yourself John the Baptist summed up his life message and what I could try to make mine and you could try to make yours. And he said of Jesus Christ, no, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm simply the forerunner. I'm simply here to make a way. The one who's coming after me, he's so great that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. I'm not Jesus. I'm simply here to tell about him. And then he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Lord, in my own mind, Lord, in the way that I represent myself to others and in what I know to be true and in the way that I live my life and the words that I say, may Jack Kirkpatrick decrease and may Jesus Christ increase and may I lift you up. And the story about the missionary continues that God called him to go to a foreign field in Africa and through the donations of God's people, he went to remote sections and places that missionaries had never been before that the only real way to get there was to fly an airplane in. And so he got to fly and he got to be a pilot. But God was preparing his heart that I gave you this gift and this calling because I want you to surrender it to me and use it in my service. There's nothing wrong with being a pilot to make money and provide for your family, but there is something wrong with it. If you tell God, I won't give this up for you if you ask me to. We have to deny ourselves. Number two, Jesus said, and take up his cross, and take up his cross. They knew what he was talking about in the day when he said that because the cross was a sign of Roman persecution. It was one of the most brutal ways to die. It was how Jesus would be put to death when he volunteered to give up his life. And as they did with Jesus after they beat him, they made him take his cross and carry it on the long route to where he, it would be placed in the ground and he would be hung and he would be crucified And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself and you have to take up your cross. Galatians 6, 5 says, for every man shall bear his own burden. That's the idea that Jesus is talking about there when he talks about being willing to take your cross. It's that if Christ calls you to bear some burdens in your life, you have to be willing to submit to it. And don't do what Peter said. Don't say not so, Lord. Don't rebuke him, but accept it. Be willing to bear it. Be willing to carry it. I said last week that Malchus was a Roman soldier, but he was a servant of the chief high priest. But the idea was the same. Peter was saying, I'm going to stop them from taking Jesus. And Jesus had to correct him again and say, no, this is the will of God. Do not fight against the fact that I'm going to die for your sins and don't resist and fight against the fact that you might have a cross to bear also someday. 
So many of the hymns that we sing came to mind as I was preparing this sermon. And the one says, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? We sing, Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. That's what Jesus was saying. You must be willing to bear your cross at a different time in your life. When the trials come, when the situation comes upon you, you will have to bear your own burden and carry a cross sometimes for Jesus Christ. Jason mentioned it again this morning. I had in my notes, to, I've mentioned this recently too, the Apostle Paul, he had what he called a thorn in the flesh. It was a physical infirmity, something that was wrong with him, that he wanted God to heal a health problem. And he said, I know what I'll do. I'll pray to God by faith and God will take it away. And he went and he said, God, please take this away. And God answered his prayer. I was told there's three ways that God answers a prayer, but he always answers it. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's not right now. God answered his prayer and he said, no, I won't take away your physical thorn in the flesh, your health problem. The Apostle Paul said, well, I'll go back and ask again. And God said no. And the third time, and God said no. And he began to understand that him being strong in Christ would not come through the fact that God would remove every obstacle, but that God would give him strength to bear that cross whatever it would be. Most rather, therefore, he said, I will glory in my infirmities for when I am weak, then am I strong because his confidence was not coming in his strength and ability to do mighty things, but rather in the fact that he could be strong in Jesus Christ. In Psalm 23, David said, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. What a picture that is. We are, we're human. We need to eat. We need to drink or else we will die. We need that food, that substance. And he said, God himself prepares a table for me. That sounds good, didn't it? But there was another part. He said, in the presence of mine enemies. And sometimes we say, Lord, could you just prepare the table and leave out the enemies part? I, Psalm 23, yea, though I walketh through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. How about if you could just be with me and I don't have to walk through the valley? But God says he teaches us spiritual victory and teaches us to be strong and teaches us to be more like Christ, not by removing every enemy and every valley and every obstacle, but he says, I'm going to leave the valley there, but I'm going to allow you to walk through it and come out the other side and be more like me and be more spiritual, more mature when you come out the other side. Oh, and also, by the way, I'll go with you. So I may not remove the enemies, but I will provide for you in spite of the fact, David, that your enemies are going to chase you down in caves and run you down and rebel against you and try to kill you. I'll still provide you a table. You'll still know what it's like to have the provision of God. Do not kick against and reject the fact that sometimes we might have to bear a cross, but ask God to say, Lord, help me to bear this cross and bring you honor and glory and be more like you when it's over. A.W. Tozer, a famous preacher for many years gone by, said one time, he said, God cannot use a man or woman until he wounds them deeply. What exactly did he mean by that? Someone writes about his comment and says this, the flaming desire to be rid of every unholy thing I'm sorry, let me start over. This is Tozer, more of his comments in context, and then there's someone else giving a comment on his comments. Okay, I told you I'm tired, but we're going to make it through this. 
The flaming desire, Tozer says, to be rid of every unholy thing and to put on the likeness of Christ at any cost is not often found among us. We expect to enter the everlasting kingdom of our Father and to sit down around the table with sages and saints and martyrs. And through the grace of God, maybe we shall. Yes, maybe we shall. But for the most of us, it could prove at first an embarrassing experience. Ours might be the silence of the untried soldier in the presence of the battle-hardened heroes who have fought the fight and won the victory and who have scars to prove that they were present when the battle was joined. I don't want to diminish what we do have to go through for Christ, but surely there are others who have gone through far more who went all the way to the stake to be burned as a martyr, yet refused to denounce the name of Jesus Christ. Tozer continues by saying that it is necessary for God to use suffering in His holy work of preparing His saints, adding, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until He has hurt him deeply. I don't think this means that we are to look for the experience of suffering if we want to be used by God. Because living in this broken world, few of us will have to look for it. It finds us. But then, when it does, when we go through suffering, then we have the choice. Will we see this as God being unkind or uncaring towards us? Or will we see in our suffering the loving hand of God preparing us for usefulness in this world and purifying us for an eternity in His presence? You're going to have enough trouble in life without going to look for it. You're going to have enough suffering without saying, well, to be more spiritual, I need to suffer. So God, sign me up for suffering. How can I go out and suffer? And some have done that. They have chosen to think that they'll be more spiritual if they suffer and admit that they are sinners. And Martin Luther climbed up and down the stairs on his knees till he bled because he called it an act of penance. He was trying to show God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I need to suffer. But the message of the gospel is that Jesus already suffered on the cross for our sins. That's not necessary. We don't have to seek it out. We don't have to try to punish ourselves. Christ was already punished. And it doesn't matter how much penance we do if we ourselves were nailed to a tree and crucified. That could not pay for our sins. But rather, as we live life, surely suffering will come to us. It will find us. And what we can do at that point is to make the decision in our heart to say, God, rather than complaining, I want to allow this to make me more like you, to see your will done, to glorify you, and to point others to you. David said in Psalm 119.71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. I don't want to be afflicted. I don't want to sign up for that. But David said it was good for me. I learned more about the Word of God and what it truly meant as I went through the time of suffering. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that no chastening for the present time seemeth to be joyous, but afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness in them that believe. And by the way, that's part of the Christian life too, is chastening. God correcting us when we do wrong, trying to get us back on the right track. Hebrews 12 said that the Lord chastens those whom he loves and he scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Scourging, to be flogged with a whip as a form of punishment. It says God does that to every single one of his children. Is it because he's an angry or abusive father? No, it's because he loves us and he wants to make us more like him. So when we get off track, 
He chastens us to teach us to be more like Him. So therefore, when we come to those times, let's not be angry at God. Let's not ask Him necessarily to remove it. Say, if it is your will, as Jesus said, remove it from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Let me bear my cross and bring you glory. Number three, Jesus said, follow me. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine eyes. In thine own eyes fear the Lord and depart from evil. In all thy ways acknowledge him. Whatever it is we're doing, if it's the kind of employee that we're being or the kind of spouse that we're being, acknowledge God. And then the promise is, He will direct your paths. And when He does, we are to follow Jesus Christ. The word there used for follow means to be in the same way, to accompany, to follow. Jesus says, be in the same way that I was in. Accompany me. Follow me. Do what I said you are supposed to do. At the invitation time, sometimes we sing, I'll go with Him, with Him, all the way. And the different verses talk about, go with Him through the garden. Go with him through the judgment. What's a couple more? To go with him, I think it's those two. He will give me grace and glory. Wherever, whatever it is he calls us to go through, we're supposed to follow Jesus Christ. It's summed up in another hymn, trust and obey. To follow Jesus Christ means we have enough faith to trust what he said and then that we choose to obey what he told us to do. Remember the word disciple means learner or pupil. We are following Jesus. We are his pupil. We're allowing him to teach us. And when he teaches us, we're supposed to do what he said. It's his words, his way, and his will. Anywhere he leads, I will follow on. Sometimes that's on the mountaintop. Sometimes that's in the valley. We're supposed to follow the footprints of Jesus. If it's out on the mountains looking for lost sheep, or if it's in the temple teaching the word of God, what Jesus did, the pattern that he gave us, we're supposed to follow. So number one, what we are to do, it's to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. Number two, what we do it for. Or we could say who we do it for, but Jesus gives two things in Mark 8.35. After he tells us what we're supposed to do, he says this is what we're supposed to do it for. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For my sake and the gospels. This is what we're supposed to do it for. This is why we are denying ourselves. It's to do it for Jesus Christ and for the good news of the gospel that he died for sinners. If Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. What we do in the Christian life is supposed to be for Christ. It's all for him. In Antioch, they looked and it was there as they observed the disciples of Jesus that they were first called Christians. It was not a name we gave to ourselves, but rather those who were in the world looked and they said they're behaving like Christ behaved. They're following the teachings that Christ gave. They're being Christians, little Christ. They are Christians. May we strive to live up to that title. We're followers and pupils of who? 
of Jesus Christ Himself, the risen Savior. Charles Spurgeon, his famous last words during the last sermon that he preached, he said this, If you wear the livery of Christ, which means the uniform of Christ, you will find Him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you will always find it in him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter on in at once. God help you enlist under the banner of Jesus Christ. Remember Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. If we have to walk through the valley and through the darkness, Christ himself walks with us. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity, but was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. The amazing fact to consider that Jesus incarnate meant that he was man. He was 100% man. He was in a man's body. When he didn't eat, he got hungry. When he walked, he got tired. He got thirsty. When they nailed him to the cross, he knew what it was like to feel the pain, but yet he was still God, 100% God at the same time. But if we have to suffer and we think it's hard, remember Jesus. Remember what he suffered for us. Anything he asks us to go through, he already went through. And he says, I'll be with you and I'll help you bear your burdens. I'll help you bear your trials. In Colossians chapter number one, there's a couple of what any English teacher would call run-on sentences. It starts going and going in verse after verse after verse without a period. It gets to the end and it's a comma or it's a semicolon and it just keeps running on and on. But there's a good reason for that. It's because he's talking about Jesus Christ. And as he talks about Christ, he just goes, he continues to go on. He says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He says that by him all things are created and all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things consist. Jesus made everything, and by Jesus all things consist, continue to exist, hold together. Without the work of Jesus Christ, not only would our heart stop beating, but the world itself would break up and would pass away and would be no more. We are in His hands. Our life is in His time. He controls the breath of life. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. It pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And He uses this phrase, that in all things He should have the preeminence. That's Jesus Christ. In all things He is to have the preeminence. He is to be lifted up. He is honored and He is to be glorified. And I'm here to tell you this morning that Christ is not just worthy of your Sunday morning or a part of what you do, but He's worthy of your whole entire life. He's worthy of you surrendering every fiber of your being and say, God, whatever your will is, I surrender it to you. Jesus Christ is worthy of that from every single one of us. Jesus said, you do it for my sake. And then he said, you do it for the sake 
of the gospel. Jesus is worthy of us denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Him, but so too is the message of the gospel. What is it? It's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He rose again after three days according to the Scripture and that we must believe in Him for forgiveness of sin. Yes, the message of the gospel is worth laying aside our ambitions, our dreams, and our goals. It's worth denying ourselves, carrying our cross, and it's worth spending a lifetime following Jesus Christ because as we know that we are going to heaven, we want to see other people there too. We want to see our loved ones. We want to see our friends, and we look forward, and we can't wait. I think if you're not going to heaven, you're crazy. Believe in Jesus. It's a really good deal. Accept it. And I think we're also in error if we do not live our life in a way that tries to bring as many people with us as we can. People we pass by every day on the highway, in the grocery store, apartment complexes, walking down the street, scores of people, and they all have a soul that will forever continue on somewhere, either in heaven or in the lake of fire. And if they're not your family, they're someone's family. They're still an image bearer of God, even if they were my enemy and someone who hated me and someone who was trying to destroy me or kill me, I would still never pray for God to send them to hell. But I would pray, God, please grant them repentance and allow them to be saved. I understand David had some imprecatory psalms and he prayed that those who would be doing evil things, God, please cut them off and take them out of the way. And I understand that. But the heart of God says he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if the desire of God is that a sinner would repent, then even if they're coming against me, I would still try to pray, God, please save their soul. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. When two parties are apart and they're holding something against each other and, and they're at odds, the role of a mediator is to try to bring, bring reconciliation. It's to try to come in the middle and go to one party on the behalf of the other and find a way to work it out. And God says that His wrath abides on sinners because in His holiness He has to punish sin. But He does not desire for them to be punished. He desires for them to receive mercy. And he says that as God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, now he has committed unto us the ministry of reconciliation. We're supposed to go to people on the behalf of God and say there's a way that you can be made right with God. You have to receive his son as Savior. Mark 16, 15, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What we do, Deny what we are to do, deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow Jesus. What we do it for, for Jesus' sake and for the gospels. And then number three, to conclude, what we gain. Or you could say, what we lose. We know what we're supposed to do. We know what we're doing it for. But when we actually do it, what do we lose and what do we gain? Mark 8, 35, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the Gospels shall save it. 
The word save your own life, it, it means what it says. You're trying to save it. You're trying to hold on to it. One of the descriptions is to preserve it. You're trying to keep it. If you want to save your own life for yourself, you'd be saying, no, no, it's mine. It's, it's my youth. It's my dreams. It's my plan. I don't want to give it up. But Jesus said if you spend your time trying to do that, hold on to what you have, rather than surrendering it to Him, what you'll actually end up doing is losing it. But if you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. It's what we could call a paradox. Jesus said you want to receive, you have to give. You want to be exalted, you have to humble yourself. Do you really want to gain, save, keep, and preserve your life? Then give it away. Give it to me and never look back. You may lose your life and some of your plans and some of what you wanted to do, yet you will truly gain true life. We gain eternal life when we receive Christ. But after we are saved, as we surrender our life to Him, we gain so much more than what we lose, than what we give up, that Jesus could accurately say, if you will lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, then you will truly save it. Verse 36, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Bill Gates, known for a long time as the richest man in the world, probably passed up by Bezos, who's passing everyone. And, but anyway, he was the richest man in the world forever. And I heard someone say one time that he was asked in an interview, do you believe in the existence of God? Do you believe that he's real? And he said, basically, I'm really not sure. I don't know if God is real or not. What shall it profit a man, though he gained the entire world, but lost his soul? There is nothing worth rejecting Jesus over. There's no one person. There's no one sin. There's no one pleasure. There's no amount of wealth that it makes sense to turn down salvation because you're afraid of losing some of those things. There was a man that Jesus spoke of that had all he would ever need and he couldn't figure out what to do. He was so rich and he said, my plan is this, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And Jesus said that God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Whatever it is that's here that we could gain, it's temporary. We're going to lose it. It's going to be gone just like that. But Jesus said, if you were to take a cup of cold water and give it to a child, and you did so in the name of Jesus Christ, verily I say unto thee, you shall not lose your reward. Therefore, he said, though it's not a sin to have a job and to do well financially, if you do that and give it to God and put him first, you can use it to be a blessing. You can use it to take care of your family and of others and give to the work of the gospel and to the church and all kinds of good things. But Jesus said primarily, lay not up for yourselves treasure here on earth because all of that treasure, it's a vapor like our life. What is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. If you have treasure here on earth, he said the thief can break through and steal it. The moths can eat it up. The rust can corrupt it. You can put a whole lot of money in the bank 
and tomorrow where might be where we're headed before too long it can be worth half of what it was worth because inflation happens and now what cost a dollar costs two five or ten dollars can't put your confidence in it but whatever it is that we do for Jesus Christ will never pass away the soul that comes to Christ and is saved that's an eternal work the time that you spend with your children their soul is eternal but the things in your home are not let's value people more than we value things let's follow Christ let's do it for the sake of the gospel I heard a pastor from Indiana say one time he went and visited a man in the hospital who was going to have a surgery and he said pastor I'm just so concerned because I might not make it through this surgery and he said I've worked so hard to get to where I am and then he started talking about my business has grown to this and my 401k hit my milestones and I have this much money in the bank and I have all these plans I was wanting to do I worked so hard to get to this point so pray please that I can stay and enjoy these things that I've laid up and as the pastor left he shook his head because everything the man was talking about was not things that were eternal and whether he died that day or whether he died 20 years from now he still was going to lose every single one of them what do we gain when we lose our life we find it what do we gain when we give up what we have we find so much more Don't be ashamed of Jesus Christ, he said in verse 38. Don't be afraid to take his name. Don't be afraid to take some of the persecution of the cross if it comes to you. Remember what we're supposed to do. Remember who you do it for. And then remember that though there are things that you lose, remember what you gain. When a business goes to implement a new strategy, they do a risk-reward analysis. They do a loss-reward analysis, a cost-reward analysis. How much is it going to cost? And what's the potential setbacks? And what's the potential gains? And does it really make sense? If we were to take that and apply it to the offer that Christ has given to us, I think it's a no-brainer. Because anything you give up for Christ, you don't really lose it. You get back so much more. Someone once said, working for God doesn't pay very much. But his retirement plan is out of this world. We don't see the results here and now. We don't live for him because it's going to make us wealthy. But oh, what we're going to get in eternity. And even in this life, yes, we're going to lose something. But remember what we gained in losing our life to ourselves. It's then that we truly find it in Christ. In conclusion, I'll read you these verses and we're done. Matthew 19, 27 through 30. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Peter, always with the questions, the rich young ruler had just came and and said, Lord, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, Give up all that you have and follow me. And he went away because his riches were keeping him from being a follower of Christ and truly repenting and believing in him. And Peter piped up and said, Well, we left all we have, so what are we going to get? We did what that guy wasn't willing to do. I left all my fish boats for you, Jesus. Am I going to get something good? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Listen to the promise that Jesus gives after that. And everyone, everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit eternal life. That means eternal life was something different than what he was talking about. And he says, whatever it is that you give up for Christ, 
you're going to get back a hundred times more. That doesn't mean if you give a dollar in the plate, you're going to have a hundred on your front seat by the time you get to your car. But there's so many more ways to measure what it is that we're getting back from Christ. And he says, if you think you're sacrificing, if you think you're giving up something for me, even if it's houses or lands or family that you have to be separated from, you gain something called the family of God, where there's brothers and sisters innumerable around the world who will be your family. Yes, if you give something up for Christ, it may hurt. You may have to do it. But he says, if you do it, you'll get back in hundredfold. Then there's a comma. And then he says, and shall inherit everlasting life. A hundred times better than what we would have on our own. And a home in heaven for all of eternity. Yes, if we were to run the risk-reward analysis, the cost, what is the cost compared to what is the benefit? I think it's a no-brainer for us to serve our kind and loving Savior who is so much better to us than we deserve that it's such an understatement to even say that. He not only gives us a home in heaven, and yes, He may ask us to suffer for His namesake, but He also says, I will daily load you with my benefits. My presence will be with you and I will never leave you or forsake you. I can't wait next Sunday to preach a little bit about the resurrection and how it applies to the gospel. Please be in prayer for me this week. Be in prayer for Ronnie and Lisa and the family and also in prayer for me that as the gospel is given that people would have an open heart and that seeds would be planted next weekend through the services that we have. I believe there will probably be people who don't know Christ in both of them at the funeral and at the service here. Pray that Jesus would be lifted up and that souls would believe in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our head for prayer. Lord, bless the sermon this morning. Bless now as we take a few moments and have a time of prayer. May we be willing to sacrifice ourselves and to yield our will to yours. Let's continue in prayer for just a moment and we'll be dismissed.